0: have a little discussion, at least with myself and you afterwards, hopefully, of what we as Western Christians call the law, and to offer what I think, I think for, for some, perhaps for many, will be a bit of a different viewpoint that's informed by insights that come from Jewish history, Jewish culture, and on the Hebrew language. And along the way, we're going to look at a few issues of language, interpretation, translation of one Hebrew word in particular. And hopefully, this will all be good background for the forthcoming sermon series, which is yeah, new covenant in the Old Testament. And also encourage you in your own Bible reading and study. So this was the first Bible given to me when I was about seven. So you can tell that it's at least 30 years old. (laughs) It's a King James Bible, otherwise known as the Authorized, because the work to produce it was authorized by King James. And this is what it says for John 17 for the law was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ now from my history with christianity i expect that some of you if not many of you will instinctively be hearing for the law a difficult thing that the jews had to live up to to try and gain salvation was given through Moses But grace and truth, what we need freely given without our effort, came through Jesus Christ. And you may also have, and not everybody, but some of you will have the view or have heard the view that the Old Testament's mostly about law and judgment, with a few good bits interspersed amongst the difficult bits, like the book of Judges that we've wrestled with over the last weeks. And thankfully, we know that the New Testament reveals grace and that God is love. But I think we can sometimes be left with a question, or possibly more, it's a back of the mind concern as to what was going on with God in the Old Testament. Was he somehow different? And as a result, have issues with him and with the law. So we're going to ask ourselves first what is grace? And I think most of us, and I've asked a few folk, we come up with similar answers. Unmerited favor, freely given, and a useful acronym, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. Who's heard that before? Yeah, so that's that's a, a helpful one. But if we ask, what is the law? I personally was much less clear about that. And I've asked some people over the last weeks, including some of you, and they were also less clear and gave quite a range of answers. So just for a few seconds, I'm not haven't, we haven't got time to hear you all, but just for a few seconds, you answer that question for yourself, what is the law? And then at the end, you can check back with yourself and think, Have I had some different insights? So just take a few seconds. What is the law? So we're going to do a bit of exploring now. And we'll start at the very beginning, because that's a very good place to start. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This was the first instruction, command, or law, if you will, given to Adam that had a consequence for disobedience. We look at it now and the command and the consequence seem pretty clear but nevertheless Adam and Eve made a choice and disobeyed and I think if we're honest certainly for me I would also have been tempted to doubt God's word and made the same choice. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And I've always taken this at at face value as a picture of life in the garden and enjoyed the image of God and Adam and Eve walking around, strolling around as a regular occurrence. And I am convinced that there had been great closeness between God and the first couple and that they ate from the tree of life. They were free to do so. But now this was a situation in which Adam and Eve were ashamed of what they'd done and God was wanting to confront them about what had happened. And the consequence the Lord God banished him, Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So the short-term outcome of the disobedience was that Adam and Eve were now separated from the place in which they had enjoyed the close presence of God and they were prevented from reaching the source of life. And in Genesis 5.5, it's recorded that Adam died. So that consequence of of disobeying God's command was indeed Death. And therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people, us, because all sinned. And that's Romans 5.12. So I'm, I'm not a great graphic artist, but I want to offer you a very basic image of the layout of the area. Somewhere in the world, there was a location called Eden... And in Eden, the Lord God planted a a garden where he put the man he had formed. And then after the banishment, God placed cherubim with a flaming whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Then after the, the sin of killing his brother Abel, Cain went even further away than Adam and Eve, and it says he wandered the world in in, in east of Eden. And as I was thinking about this, there was, there was a real sense for me that the Bible could have ended after just a few chapters of Genesis. God's command was clear, the consequence was clear, and he could have said, that's it. Adam and Eve are out of the garden somewhere in Eden and Cain's even further away and they will eventually all die. But the fact the Bible didn't end there was because God is full of grace and mercy, loving towards all that he has made. In fact, he had already, even after their disobedience, he'd already put skin on Adam and Eve and he spoke with Cain after the sacrifice that he and Abel had offered. So he was still interacting with them. But what we all really need is a way back into the garden, into God's wonderful, intimate presence, and to tap into the source of life again. And we find, we know, that God had a plan to achieve this And as that plan unfolded, he's revealed himself through history at intervals, despite our continuing disobedience and wickedness. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, people of Israel, Elijah, etc., etc. And the way I would describe it is all of that revelation is a progression of revelation of grace and truth, right until the ultimate revelation of grace and truth, who is Jesus. So we're going to pick up on the question of of what is the law that was given to Moses that we read in the very first verse, and what part does it play in the plan? First, though, I just want to have a a wider look at what we as Christians call the Old Testament of the Bible. Okay, how many books are there in what we call the Old Testament? Somebody, don't disappoint me. Even thirty-nine. Luca is right. Thirty-nine. Wonderful. The writing of these books is spread over hundreds of years, with the last being finished just a few hundred years before the Lord's birth. And I, I'm saying this respectfully, but I'm hopeful that everyone knows that the Bible was not originally written in English. I am I'm, I'm, I'm serious because I have heard of folk who believe that the authorised version was the original when it wasn't even actually the first translation to English. The Old Testament books are all written in Hebrew, apart from some very short sections in Ezra and Daniel that are in Aramaic, because they're quoting somebody speaking in Aramaic. The written Hebrew of the Bible is a type of writing system in which each symbol stands for a consonant, leaving it for the readers to know, infer, or otherwise supply the, the appropriate vowels, and it's read from right to left. And there is the revealed name of God in Hebrew, which we write out as YHWH in terms of the actual letters. It's yod he, vav, hey. This bit's extra, so I might take another minute. The hey, the meaning of the letters, each letter has its own meaning. And the meaning of hey is to do with breath. And it appears twice in the name of God. Hey. It's known as the tetragrammaton or the four letters. The pronunciation is unknown, but we in English say Yahweh, or Jehovah. Now, the Hebrew Bible, it, it was in the Lord's time, it would have been called the Mikra, or the readings. It's now known as the Tanakh. It's got the same books as our Old Testament, but they're grouped differently in a different order. Three sections, Torah, Nevim, Ketuvim. And if you take the initials of those, T-N-K, and put a vowel sound, that's where Tanakh Comes from. This is how they're arranged. So I want to just pick out a few points. The Torah, the five books of Moses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 12 minor prophets are all one book. Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, and Kings are all, and Samuel are all each one book. But it's the same content. Right, those of you who heard the first talk last year should remember this map. This is the Greek Empire in about 275 BC, and Israel is in this little bit here. 300 years later, the Greek Empire has gone, and now this is the Roman Empire covering the area at the time of the Lord Jesus, also including Israel. So it's not surprising that the Hebrew Bible was first translated into Greek and then somewhat later into Latin. So here's the Greek one. It's called the Septuagint, 2nd, 3rd century BC. The Latin is called the Vulgate, 4th century AD. And then the rabbis put together a definitive Hebrew text which includes all the pronunciation quite a bit later, and that's called the Masoretic Text. The Septuagint was widely in use at the time of the early church because most Jews actually spoke Greek and not Hebrew. So when the New Testament writers were referring to the Old Testament, the Old Bible, they quoted the Septuagint, the Greek. Now, since then, translations to other languages are usually based on the Septuagint and the Masoretic, and they've brought in recently scholarship from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Peshitta Aramaic translation. Now, having said all that, the first one to English was from the Vulgate by Wycliffe, then Tyndale, work from the originals and then came the authorised and now we're greatly blessed with a lot of versions I've read from quite a few mostly NIV and now I use quite a bit from the complete Jewish Bible and the New English translation which has an amazing set of notes about why they used words and translations and you can get all these through the U-version app. Anybody got that? I thoroughly recommended because you can jump between versions and get insights. Now, obviously, a huge amount of wonderful work has been done with translating the Bible from other languages into English and many, many others. But it won't surprise you there are challenges in translating we are completely confident that the bible is the inspired word of god all scripture is god breathed useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness but translations of the bible do vary and they can be influenced by methods backgrounds Viewpoint of the translators. So, we're going to get to one word in the Hebrew where the meaning I think most of us will attribute to it might not be the full story and might even be misleading us a little bit. And that word is Torah, shown here in Hebrew. Remember now that this generally represents the first section. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The word itself, Torah, first appears in Genesis 26, 5, when God is talking to Isaac about how his father Abraham had followed what God had said. And its principal meaning is teaching or instruction. So then, much of God's teaching and instruction for the people of Israel was given on Mount Sinai. And you can read that, Exodus chapters 19 to 23. And the context of all that teaching is from a loving and gracious heavenly father as a covenant agreement with his people after he brought them out of Egypt, after being in slavery. He gave them guidance He gave them some clear instructions, some rules of life on how best to live. Now they're free. They've been under the dominion of Egypt. Now they're setting themselves up as a nation. And it was given so that they could become a kingdom of priests for God, a nation set apart. Deuteronomy 29:9 says keep the terms of this covenant and obey them so that you may be successful in everything you do this is the purpose of the teaching and the people had actually previously agreed to it they'd said we will we will we will obey the words of God So it it doesn't seem to me to have been given as a basis for salvation or for judging and punishing the people of Israel or even mankind, although there were consequences for disobedience. There are moral parts, legal, social, worship-related aspects, all aimed at their physical and spiritual well-being as they started life the other side of the Red Sea. It included aspects that set Israel apart from the other nations. And then there were the additional detailed instructions given to Moses covering the sacrificial system and the tabernacle, how the Israelites could and should worship Yahweh. This is all going at quite a pace and I don't have time to do any detail, but I do want to refer back to the image that I showed earlier as we think about the tabernacle and say, watch this. Because this was the basic layout of the tabernacle and later the temple. Outer courts, holy place, most holy. Holy place. And woven into the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place were cherubim. So the imagery in the tabernacle is beginning to show the way back for man into the intimate presence of God in the most holy place, back into the garden if you will, just what we said we needed. Initially, that was just for one man, the high priest, once a year, through the sacrifice, the blood of animals, and after his own intense preparation, he would go through the curtain that had these cherubim woven into it. It's a wonderful pointer to the sacrifice to come. And that was referred to with the red flags, the blood of Jesus. And what happened when the Lord died? The curtain ripped from top to bottom, torn in two to give us access to the most holy place. Now, this is all good news as far as I'm concerned. It's the grace of God... Revealed in the teaching and instruction given to the people of Israel. Okay with that? So what I asked myself was: So why then, have, in my head at least, and I suspect in some of yours, why have there been negative connotations about this teaching and instruction? The the Septuagint usually translates Torah. Using a Greek word that's nomos, and probably originally that was meant in the sense of the living network and traditions and customs of a people, but it does have some legal connotation, and it's virtually always been translated into English as law may have been influenced by the the Vulgate, the Latin one, because they translate nomos into lex in Latin, which usually does mean law, but it can mean covenant as well. And the use of nomos is carried on into the Greek New Testament because they were referring back to the Septuagint. So for me, there's a bit of a concern in this one case of using the word law as a translation of Torah. And I think Christianity has, has kept that, and our thought patterns are even influenced by that, that history of translation, led to a what I would say is a misrepresentation of what God intended, giving a misunderstanding that Torah means legalism. So, an example. Proverbs 1, 8, 9 says, My son, heed the discipline of your father and do not abandon the teaching of your mother. They will be a garland to grace your head, a medal of honour for your neck. Teaching in the Hebrew is Torah, where the translation works well. And the imagery of what that discipline and teaching brings, for me, it's wonderful to what it gives the child. And that's what God intended to give his people through the Torah. A more neutral example, different translation approach of the complete Jewish Bible, the same law applies in the NIV, the same teaching is to apply equally if you translate Torah as per the original Hebrew. Now, again, not enough time for details. If you really want to go into details, Strong's Concordance is wonderful because it gives you every time a Greek or Hebrew word is used and how it's translated. So I do encourage you to do your own research. But just to give you a few comments direct from Jewish Christian sources... This is from the Israel Bible Center. In both the Old and New Testament, there are many ideas that are all conveyed into English with the word law. So it tends to make unclear the original language belief. Concerning Old Testament, law is not a good translation of Torah. Its meaning is instruct and shares the same root with the words for teacher and parent. It's not like the laws of a legislature, it's like the instruction of a father. As for the New Testament, there are many different ideas too that turn into law in English, but doing so does justice to the nuances Paul meant to convey. Commandment is mitzvah, law is chok, instructions are Torah. It's not just my opinion, says the head of Israel Bible Center, it's Hebrew. But should a person do what is God's will, no matter what it's called? Yes. My point address is calling the Torah the books of Moses by the word law. It's like referring to the loving instructions of a father to a child as law. So let's go back to our verse. Reading again in the King James For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And I did notice in my old Bible, a but is in italics. And the reason it's in italics is because it isn't there in the Greek. It was put in by translators to match their views on the meaning at the time. And again, i There will be another chance, I hope, to talk about this, but that was probably influenced by a measure of anti-Jewish thinking in the church back then. And there's another whole subject to open up on that. The NIV and the modern translations mostly don't include the but. But I think it's had a subliminal influence on us NIV, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, as if we're somehow comparing the good with the not-so-good in the past. But now we're going to put verse 16 before it. So in the NIV, we get, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of the grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Or in the the complete Jewish Bible, we have all received from his fullness, the Lord's fullness. Yes, grace upon grace. For the Torah, the teaching and instruction, was given through Moshe. Grace and truth came through Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah. So I now read these words that they imply to me that God's loving instruction in the Torah was actually grace already given, and now there's even more, the ultimate grace revealed through Jesus. And that's where the title of the talk comes, Grace Upon Grace. What did the Lord say about the law? I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Paul said, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And the writer to the Hebrews says, the law, though, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, but it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And now we, us, have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Get us back into that most holy place. So where were the issues? Well, Jesus often said to the folk of the time who were teaching the law, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, he often said, woe to you. Not because the law was wrong, but because they had corrupted the teaching. They'd made it legalistic. They'd added the so-called hedges of protection to stop the law even being close to be broken, which was a burden for the people. And actually, they also used, which the Lord criticised on a number of occasions, they also made those hedges of protection a way of excusing themselves from having to obey bits of the law. So I think that's where the issue that we pick up comes from what the teachers of the law had done to it. So I think perhaps best summed up now by finishing with a short passage taken from a book called A Way Through the Wilderness by Jamie Buckingham. He says, It seems strange that God would give commandments knowing the people couldn't keep them, First high priest Aaron broke the second commandment even before the tablets of stone were handed over, etc., etc. If the ten commandments were impossible to keep, then why were they given? Well, they were given to reveal the nature of God. For God is far more interested in people who want to establish a relationship with him than in a people who keep all the rules but never learn to abide in his presence. So questions will remain with you about what I've said. That's fine. I'd love to chat with you about them. Questions will remain about other things that we read in the Old Testament. But let's start with the view that God's teaching and instruction way back then is all out of love and grace. And it's part of his plan to get us back into his presence. We've talked about Torah, meaning God's teaching and instruction, which ends up as law, which tends to bring thoughts other than love and grace. But we can be confident God is actually the same, yesterday, today, forever, from the Garden of Eden through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, right to today. He's full of grace and love. He's also holy and giving us ways to be disciplined. But now that we've access again to the garden, to his presence in the most holy place through the blood of Jesus, let us all pursue an ever-deepening relationship. We're nowhere near finished. We're even the most Longest Christian if you will there's so much more for us to to learn to experience of his presence back in the garden I'll finish it there, I'd love to chat with folk afterwards but I appreciate it It was quite a long talk but uh, appreciate you listening and I trust as you go away and reflect on it there'll be some things you say actually Maybe I can change my view of the law a bit. Brilliant. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. you. Yes, Sarah and the band, do come back, please. It'd be be fantastic to uh, worship together before we finish our time together. Trevor, thank you so much. Um, uh, Trevor uh, mentioned next week we start our next preaching series, New Covenant in the Old Testament. Um, so that really is a great introduction for us this week because next week we're going to begin to see even more um, how good uh, God's word to us was even before Jesus came. We're going we're to fall in love even more with some of the Old Testament.